Uh, hey, everybody, this is Scotty Jinks, and I'm joined tonight by uh, Barry Pett, uh, who's an elder at Redeemer Church. Barry, say hi. Hey. <laughs> uh, tonight, uh, George is feeling under the weather, uh, so Isaiah chapters 59 and 60 will be uh, Barry and I going over uh, by ourselves. So uh, tonight, what we want to do is look at these two chapters. Uh, so we're, we're getting pretty close. Uh, Isaiah, according to my Bible, has 66 chapters. Uh, so we're, we're in the home stretch here. And that means as things start to close, um, we have, uh, I want to say that this is our fourth to last uh, episode for the Isaiah series. Um, well, uh, Barry, it's your first time joining us. And yeah. so that means we want to give you the, uh, the pleasure of uh, going first with each of our segments. Uh, but I forgot to mention the name of the podcast. So this is uh, Radical Reflections from Reading Rightly, and I forgot to say Redeemer. Uh, so those are the five R's of the five R's, and uh, let's go ahead and start with our first impressions. Uh, Barry, what would you like to share about um, your first meeting with uh, chapters 59 and 60? Yeah, I guess for me, the, uh, what, what struck me, and especially putting the two chapters together, was to me, it's just a beautiful portrayal of the gospel that you have all of the elements. Whenever you think about, you know, whether you're using, you know, the sinfulness of man and the you know, and salvation, the gospel story, and reconciliation and restoration of things, you see all of that wrapped up in these two chapters. In fifty nine, you you certainly see the sufficiency of Christ. You lengthy things of the of the sinfulness of man. But then you see the sacrifice of Christ and, and then you follow it up with 60, which is all of this imagery of, of, of you know, a future kingdom and heavenly kingdom. And, and so we see the restoration of things. So all of the elements of the gospel story are, are in these two chapters, very beautifully written. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, um, Barry, you actually taught me to uh, present the gospel, you know, starting with brokenness. And uh, I think 59 is a really good picture, uh, you know, particularly the, the first part of 59 is a good picture of that uh, brokenness, the need for a savior, and especially showing, you know, what it looks like for people to do what comes natural. And then uh, 60 is, you know, the Lord, uh, the, the Lord making promises um, and fulfilling those promises and showing how he's going to um, he's going to unbreak all those things. So. That's um, because what I was going to say was that 59 is, you know, on the sad side. Um, it's you, you look at it and you get disappointed uh, in the people of God, uh, which is a picture of us. So we get disappointed in ourselves only to find out how God responds is uh, overwhelmingly positive. Uh, he's just he's so full of uh, goodness and so full of love for us. There is a whole lot of encouragement. So I'm really glad we're doing these two chapters together because 59 on its own would have been a real downer. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and, and dive in. Um, Isaiah chapter 59, uh, I'll go ahead and start reading it. And when we get to the end of the first, um, let's say two verses, um, then we'll take a pause to uh, talk about what we've, what we've heard. Um, so let me go ahead now and say, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, 
and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Um, now, I uh, before this slow go of Isaiah, um, I previously only knew of one uh, verse in the Bible that talked about God not hearing prayers, and that's coming out of the New Testament. But this is actually the second reference uh, that God's made in Isaiah to literally shutting his ears to people's prayers. And that's a terrible place to be. I, I am terrified to think uh, that God might not hear my prayers. Yeah, I, I, uh, I guess for, when I saw it, I think it just, to me, these first two verses kind of almost in some ways kind of set up the whole thing. Um, that you see again, we talk about what I talked about the salvation story. The first one is the is we see the sufficiency of God. It is not, you know, his arm is not too weak to save, his ear is not too deaf. It says, But here's what's really going on your iniquities are what separated from God, your sins have hidden his face. And it says, So that he does not listen to you. So it's God's, it's not that God cannot save, it's not that he can't hear because of your sin. Because of sin, he chooses not to. Um, and then it goes into this lengthy thing of like, this is why he doesn't listen, because this is all that goes on and on and on and on of all of these things. So so it kind of sets up the, this, uh, to me, I think the two verses really kind of set up, particularly all of 59, um, really well. And the rest of it is just really an explanation of, you know, I guess, you know, three through what, around 14 or where the, I think it shifts around 15. Um, where all of a sudden it's just depravity, depravity, depravity. And because of this, this is what I've done. And there, and there is a beautiful redemption part of this later in the chapter that does bring some like, oh, whew, it's a, thank God we have a savior, right? <laughs> right. So, yeah. so that's why I guess I saw that the first two verses are really critical to this whole thing. Yeah, it is really interesting that he talks about uh, God first, and then talks about uh, humanity in, in in relation to God, because typically you would hear uh, a story like this. It would simply start with man and and all of man's flaws. But you're right. We we start with uh, God and His lack of flaws. Um, and so, really, what we're going to be looking at is the human responsibility in in our sin. Right? That uh, the Lord that we are complicit. Um, that we are not. Um, in the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, but that we're here, uh, we're the ones sinning. And so the separation between every human and God is, uh, is our own doing. Like, it's an inside job because we're here carried away by our own desires. Um, and a lot of what we're going to see actually here uh, is like that uh, human responsibility and kind of how it, it plays into the problem of evil. Because yeah. a lot of times we hear the complaint about God. We say, you know, how can you believe in God when there's so much bad in the world? And now uh, the Lord, you know, in verse 14 uh, and 15, he's really going to respond to that exact question. But before we get there, we need to look at this list of iniquities that are, you know, causing a separation between God's people, uh, a.k.a. us, and God himself. So verse 3 hey. says... Probably, be, I, would, I would almost say, even before we get into that, maybe it's, it's in context of reading this, I think it's really, to me, it was really important in this whole thing of the pronouns are critical. I think it's a huge thing if you, if you go through this and you see, um, 
at first it kind of struck me like, wow, that's a why seems kind of like, what are you doing here? But you see like in verse two and three, these, you see the consistently, you see the pronoun your um, starting, it started verse four, you, you have the, no one. And then it switches to they, verse six, switches to there, um, back to they in verse eight, we have we's all the way through nine through 11, 12 goes to our, and there's, there's a consistent pattern. And I think, I think it just shows the comprehensiveness of depravity it's not just you it's not just we it's us all of us and he uses i just seems like there's a there's a prominence in the fact that there's an intentional use of of pronouns that we we should keep in mind as we walk through this yeah that's a good point um isaiah does speak of his own uh iniquity here you know when he's um uh when he's given these answers and says um, he, he's not uh, pointing the finger at someone else. You know, at the, at the end of the last chapter, uh, he was talking about uh, a particular uh, group of sinners or a particular way of sinning uh, that people were, um, that people, he doesn't use that same kind of language, right? He's, he sticks with the your, you know, throughout uh, chapter 58. And so here, you know, it is, it is a lot more uh, inclusive. So uh, then he starts off, he says, For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, and they speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Well, I just want to point out, there's, there's been a lot of like legal, um, legal language used uh, in Isaiah. And, you know, here's the same thing. He's, he says that people aren't even using the law correctly. They're taking someone to court uh, over something they shouldn't. Uh, and, you know, he says almost like it's a complete perversion. It's like it's not enough for these guys to dislike their neighbor. They have to uh, – it's not enough for them to tell lies. They have to bring it to court. They have to use, you know, in, in their time, you know, living under um, – uh, a theocratic monarchy, right? The law that they're using to condemn this other per- person is the Bible. Yeah, one of the things I see is I, I like the contrast, the immediate contrast in here in verse, comparing verse three to verse one, um, is the the use of, of even body body parts. You know, it's like it's talking about the, the Lord's arm is not too weak and his ear is not too is not too deaf to hear. But then it immediately goes in contrast. Your hands are defiled, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters injustice. So that we, we see this, this stark contrast of what the Lord is and what we are. And um, yeah, and then of course you see the, it immediately, uh, that's why I think four is so key because it goes to, switches to the pronoun, no one. It usually goes from Lior and no one makes these things justly, no one pleads. And then, of course, they go straight into they trust, they conceive, they hatch, they weave. And, and it's just this laundry list. There's these patterns of, of visualizations he seems to use in each of these little sections. But all, all of that is answering the question, I think, three on down is like, why? Why does he, you know, why does he not listen? Well, here's why. Because your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers are in with iniquity. This is why he's not listening. It's not because he's too weak. It's not because he's deaf. It's because this is why. 
And if it, and, and, that, and that sets up the whole redemption story that we see a little later because, yeah, so I think that's the beauty of this. But I think these 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 word pictures of these things are, are, are kind of cool imagery. Uh, and I just want to point out that uh, the way that conceive rhymed with weave, uh, the way you were um, pointing it out just now, it sounds like you might be working on um, working on the Christian rap, you know, um, I think maybe if you toy, toy with that a little bit more, it could be going somewhere. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about what they hatch, uh, because verse five says they hatch adders eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with, with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity. The deeds of violence are in their hands. Uh, so the whole idea of the hatching and the weaving is that they're working hard, right? They're breaking a sweat and putting their, um, putting their uh, elbow grease into how hard they're sinning, right? And they're not producing anything that anybody wants. They're, they're working hard but they've got nothing to show for it except a bunch of hurt people. Yeah. Yeah. I think you see that the pair, the parallel in verse four and five, where it's talking about what they do, they trust, they conceive, they hatch, they weave. And then, and then you go to verse six, this is what the fruit of their, all this labor is their webs. Because, okay, because they do these things, their webs can't do this. Their works are sinful. Their feet run, their thoughts all of these things that they're all you so you see here's what they're doing and then this is what the fruit of that and none of that it's bad all the way around mm-hmm. yeah almost like a uh, almost like a bad pickup line you know are you tired because your feet have been running to evil all day um and with that verse 7 says their feet run to evil they're swift to shed innocent blood their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity desolation and destruction are in their highways he says, the way of peace they do not know, and there's no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Uh, so I think, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of the saying, you know, no Jesus, no peace, comma, no Jesus, no peace. Uh, and, of course, one of those has a K and a W. Right. Because that seems to be the, the heart of the saying seems to be this verse. Right. There there was a way to peace. Uh, there was a highway. The Lord made things easy. Uh, and instead, they've carved their own path. They've stepped off uh, the path of peace and they don't know how to get back. And I think you also what you see here is the uh, not only the this pitch, a picture of the comprehensiveness of sin, not only in the comprehensive of, of who's insane, like we all do it. You do it. They do it. We do it. All, everyone does it, but not only but not only the conference of who does it, but but the conference of, of our sin. It, we, you see, like even I think in six and seven particularly, their works, you know, there's what they do, their feet, their body, everything that happens with their body, even their thoughts are corrupted. Sin, there's no part of us that sin has not corrupted. And I think the imagery and the poetry in here is just to show the comprehensive invasiveness of sin in our lives there is no part of our being physical spiritual mental emotional psychological anyway that sin has not distorted destroyed and produced carnage 
Right. So it's no wonder that, uh, there, that there's no justice, right? It's no wonder that there's no peace because uh, everyone is entirely sinful. Um, so then uh, if we can move on to uh, verse 9, 9 and 10, he says, uh, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. So there's that us you were mentioning, Barry. Uh, mm-hmm. We hope for light and behold darkness. We, oh, I'm sorry, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon, as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Uh, so he's comparing himself to others, or he's comparing ourselves, you could say, to others, and saying that there's, uh, there's a big difference. He says the way that we are living is not matching uh, the way of the world. He says that the best of times are not best for us. Uh, the Lord has provided uh, all of this light for us, right? And so the, the, here's the body part imagery you mentioned, you know, blind and ha- having no eyes, you know, like it wasn't enough for him to say that they're blind. He says they're eyeless. Yeah. Um, and basically they're hoping and they're groping, uh, but they're not able to get their hands on uh, anything uh, anything good. Uh, and you know, the, uh, verse eight, you know, talked about the way that they're walking and verse nine and 10 is talking about how, uh, they can't even walk in a straight line. Right. Um, they're so disoriented and that's really the picture that I'm getting is of uh, somebody who doesn't know which way is left and which way is right. I think when I look at those, I think there's a, you always look for, I always look for connecting words. When you look at pieces, make, always pay attention to the connecting words. And therefore you see in, uh, in nine, that word therefore um, means that we're, we're taking a shift here. I think it, what it, it seems like that reflects, there's a cause effect relationship that we see that through uh, basically uh, three, three through seven is the cause and then starting or three through eight is the cause. And then we say nine. Now here's the effect because you, because of all of this and nine is almost kind of like a, um, a reinstatement of, of verse two, you know, here's the cause of what, why are you doing your, your iniquities? Because you're doing these things, your iniquities are separating you away from God. They've hidden his face from you. And therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. Um, all of this, this is now we're going to get into what the effects of our sinfulness is. And, and again, this, this vivid imagery of groping and stumbling and growling and moaning. Um, these are all powerful words. Um, walking around like we're dead. Um, these are, these are really dark. He, he's not, he really wants to use his every word possible just to paint how desperate our sin condition is. And he does it pretty effectively, I think. Absolutely. So uh, one of the big themes of the book has been that God sees things differently than we see them. And this is almost like the negative uh, version of that. It's us seeing things uh, because of our sin, uh, us seeing things worse than they otherwise would be. And But like you mentioned, uh, that's that uh, separation uh, between us and God that, his face is hidden, which means there's no wonder uh, justice is gone. Uh, we, we can't see light. 
and they're uh, hoping for justice. And, and I think that's really the, uh, the only thing almost redeeming left in the people of God at this point is that, that they, they would like justice and they're unwilling to do anything to get there. You know, and that's why the, the emphasis on this, um, the, the end of this chapter is going to be on uh, repentance, really. And, um, but, of course, you can't make someone repent. Uh, there, it has to be, uh, it has to be, it has to come from inside. So, uh, verse it 11. Does, it does probably, probably one thing I think to point out again. I know I keep coming back to the pronoun issue, but it, I think it's really so important in there, that that, that pattern. Did you see the... Just as there's a transition at nine that we're going from the cause to the effect, there's also a shift from the from the they and there that hey, this is out. It will see like it's outside of you, and you notice from nine to twelve, the pronouns all become personal pronouns. We and our mm-hmm. um, that it's like hey, this don't think that this is them. We do this. We grope our transgressions, our sins, our transgressions. All of this is like hey, this is. This is you. This is us. This is all of us. And um, it's pretty, you can't, there's no, he doesn't leave us room to, to escape this. Like, well, thank God I'm not like those guys. Right. <laughs> like, no, we, you, you're part of we. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that nine w- it was sort of a, uh, like a re a retelling of uh, verse two. And, but that is the primary difference is that uh, your becomes us. So, He's, he's really expanding verse two uh, to include himself. So yeah. uh, verse 11 says, we all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it's far from us for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us. And we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart, lying words. So here we see a a turn because uh, it seems like the people do actually know what was wrong. They're able to, uh, because of how difficult their life has been, because of their iniquities separating them from God, they've uh, been able to see with some clarity all these sins in their lives uh, that, that have caused it. One of the things that, that caught me, that I, I think of the phrase, I say that good news is only good news to the degree that bad news is bad news. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, worse the, the worse the bad news, the greater the good news. As he's getting ready to set up the good news of, of, of redemption, um, we see, again, just how dark this is. And I think, and I, I like the way you talked about before, that there's a legal, there's this legal language, um, that there, you know, the transgressions that multiply, your sins testify against you. Like this is a court case. You got your 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 sins are 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 exhibit A, B, C, and D, and they're the first. They're all the witnesses. We're going to line up witnesses, and they all testify against you. Um, it's bad. It's really really bad, and which sets us up for a really great savior. Absolutely. You know, uh, if somebody were uh, in court to say, you know, oh well, I'd like I'd like for Scotty's uh, sins to take the stand. Um, you know, I think I would take any plea on the table <laughs> rather than uh, to, to let anybody uh, testify. Um, yeah, trans, our that, trans, I'm sorry, our transgressions are with us, 
and we know our iniquities. I mean, imagine that in a court, like, okay, you're you got blood stains on your on your shirt right now, right? You can't. There's there's no getting around this. There's no there's no defense. Um, yeah. Um, so this this is the kind of the hopeful turn because uh, confession, you know, precedes repentance. And so at this point, we've gotten to the point where uh, we're, we're confessing our sin, uh, or at least aware of it. And so yeah. that moves us into uh, verse 14. He says, uh, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he departs from evil, makes himself a prey. Uh, so I want to stop there. Uh, one of the reasons for doing the book of Isaiah is uh, seeing the parallels between the way that um, America is today and the, um, the place in society, I guess, that um, Israel had when Isaiah was speaking to them. And so here, you know, this section is talking about how, uh, how difficult it is to have justice when uh, public discourse won't allow it. And he says here, uh, basically, truth is lacking. And if somebody doesn't partake in the evil that everyone else is doing, uh, then he's going to make himself a target. <laughs> he says it is dangerous to go out there without properly um, sinning first. With, and he, he doesn't even say iniquities here. You know, he said our transgressions are with us back in 12. But here he's talking about evil. He says, if you try to keep yourself from evil, uh, you're, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable spot. Yeah. So I, again, I see 14 is kind of a, and I, I think it's, a, you know, it's obviously it's good that we intentionally stop in the middle of 15 because halfway in, right in the middle of the verse is where the whole thing shifts. Um, but you know, 14 is, it's 14 and 15, 15a really is kind of like it's almost like the culmination of all of this because of all because you've done all this stuff and you are we do and our hope and they and all this kind of stuff and the result of that is like this is how dark it is just there is no justice there's no righteousness there's no truth there's no honesty truth is gone this thing is a big jacked up mess um mm -hmm. uh it's and and then 15b comes Right. And we're like, oh, it's like it's like it, it was just I don't know about you. But it was just like this a little bit of a, this light kind of breaking through this. It's so dark and hard to read these first 15 verses. They're like, you know, that man, 15 was I finally got the 15 B. I was like, oh, <laughs> there's hope. Right. Um, yeah. That's right. Uh, so we're trying to answer the question, you know, where is God's justice? You know, why is the world so bad? Why are things so hard? And the irony is that we don't even have to continue in the chapter because uh, the question's already been answered. Uh, back in verse 12, uh, the people, you know, speaking together say, you know, our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. We know our iniquities. And so the question, you know, why is there no justice? Uh, in Israel at this time, the easy answer is that the people know they're at fault. And now the Lord is going to answer the question himself. Uh, we're ready to finish 15. Yeah. It says the Lord saw it 
and it displeased him that there was no justice. So we always want to say, we always want to look around at, at the way that things are and say, you know, wow, how can God be proud of this? How can, how can this be the world that God made and that God is sovereign over? You know, if, if he really is good, um, why does it look this way? And the irony is, looking at the passage, the Lord is asking the same question. He's looking around and he says, why are things, why are things like this? He, he says, uh, it displeases me that there's no justice. But, uh, but how can God say that if he's in control? You know, who, uh, who else could possibly bear any responsibility here? Yeah, so you know, I look at it, I think this is to me that I think that first part of it is we get to at the at the end of or end of 16 is where we really start to take a turn. But I think in 15 is we see another key element of of this gospel story here is that God can't wink at this stuff. He can't just say, Oh, those silly kids, um, this offends him. I looked at I guess when I looked at that where it's such a strong turn, there's no justice, he was offended. I I, I actually was able to go went back, I used a I think I, Bible Hub and looked up 15 to kind of see all the different and I see different translations. I see that sometimes some translations I see shocked, it disgusted him, it astounded him, it appalled him, it astonished him. Um, all of those are different words that were used in different translations. That he was, he was, he saw that there was no justice and he was disgusted. He was appalled. He was offended. He was shocked. He was like, it. That's God's holy nature that when he you see this stuff, his natural response is disgust. Um, how? Yeah. And then, and then, of course, you see, I guess we haven't gotten to 15, 16 yet, have we? Well, uh, I do want to point out uh, what you said, you know, and it displeased him is what the ESV says. Mm-hmm. And but my Bible also has a footnote that tells me the Hebrew says, and it was evil in his eyes. Um, And I think that that is a a really powerful um, contrast with uh, Genesis, right? When God looked at the world and said, it is good. And now we see the Lord uh, saw, was looking and seeing, um, and it's no longer good. Yeah, you know what, I I need to make a correction there. I I actually am looking at my notes and I, I turned my notes around. Um, okay. so, <laughs> and that as I look over this, I, yeah, I did look at offended because I, I was looking at that. The the things I just used was actually was the word amazed. Um, those were words of scripture in place of amazed in the next verse. But the, yeah, there's oh. like the, the Hebrew word waira, which is displeased or evil in his eyes. Um, he saw that there was no justice, and and he saw that it was it was evil in his eyes. He was. Yeah, he was offended. So that was those things I just mentioned. I think that actually had to connect it to the next verse, not not this one. So sorry about that. Oh, that's no problem, because sixteen says he saw there was no man and wondered or marvelled, like you said, that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Yeah, yeah. This is to me is almost like the. This is like almost like the Ephesians two. The but God, right? Um, right. It's almost that kind of a moment. He he looked at this. He saw we, we just laid out all of this brokenness, and God looked and saw there was no justice. He was he was displeased. He saw the evilness, and he saw and this is this is the helplessness of man, right? We see that okay, God saw it. He can't wink at it. He can't let it go. 
and he saw that there was man's in a pickle. He can't fix it himself. There was no man that could do this. He was amazed that no one was interceding. No one can step up in the place. Man was in, humankind was in an impossible, hopeless situation. And he thought, there is, unless I step in myself, there is no hope for humanity. And that is, isn't that the, I mean, that's the gospel. He was, I mean, you could take those, those two lines. He was amazed that no one was interceding. So his own arm brought salvation. Bam. Just there's your drop the mic moment. All right. That's the gospel. We're bad. God saw that no one, you can't fix it. No one's interceding. I'm astonished. I'm appalled. It, and then that's where you think, now you take those words where I see some translations used. He was shocked that no one was interceding. He was disgusted that no one was interceding. He was appalled that no one was interceding. So his own arm brought salvation. Great news. There's the hope. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we see Christ there, that um, his, his right arm who's doing this, uh, who's bringing salvation, it, it, of course, is, is Christ, and he does that as a man, right? He's, he was looking around um, for a man uh, who's going to intercede and ends up, uh, in a sense, uh, providing the man and also being the man. You know, Trinitarian language is really difficult in contexts like this when you're trying to describe an action. Um, but the truth is, you know, he's, uh, he's uh, saving us himself, like you mentioned, and then we're going to talk about him, um, him attacking uh, his uh, enemies, which in this case, you know, we're, we're talking uh, a bit of a, a double meaning here. Right, yeah, verse uh, 17 through 19. Mm-hmm. So he's, uh, he's explaining uh, that uh, sin being the enemy, um, sinners being... Uh, something that needs to be corrected. And here, uh, people needing to be defended, um, in a sense, from themselves. But really, we're, verse 20 is going to be the, the best um, sort of summation of what we're talking about here. But uh, I guess we should um, read uh, 17 through 19 first. All right, it says, uh, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, uh, so we're we're getting some Ephesians language here, and he says he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself in zeal. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment, render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun, which uh, is the east, if I remember. <laughs> For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. So there's no escape, uh, right, from, from Christ's gaze and also from his, from his judgment. You know, we saw before how uh, all these sins he is aware of, right? There's nothing we can do to sort of shield uh, our sin and our, our identity. You know, who we really are is an open book for the Lord. Yeah, I think so. You when when I look at these things, one of the things I always look when I look at scripture, I always try to like, what what question does this phrase or this section answer? And that it kind of helps me put things within the context. So when I look at 17, it's 
this kind of answer to me, it kind of answers the how question of 16b, where so his own arm brought salvation and his own righteousness supported him. How? All right. 17. This is how he did it. He put on righteousness as a body armor. He put on the garments. Again, now, two things. Note, note the change in pronouns again. Everything before was, was we, are they, them. Now it's he. He did this. His enemies. All of this mm -hmm. is him. So, and, and yeah, so you see the, you see the combination of what, of him bringing righteousness and part of, and part of his bringing salvation and righteousness is judgment. There is, there's, there's this concept of, yes, he's saving his people, but there's also judgment and there's as much judgment language in there as there is the salvation part of it. That's right. He makes, you know, he makes all these distinctions between uh, repayment and uh, wrath, right? Um, mm -hmm. We have uh, over and over again, he talks about the wealthy and he talks about the people who have the, have the freedom to move by sea, you know, on the, on the uh, coasts and uses that as kind of a euphemism for um, far away, right? That we can see uh, through people who trade with other nations, you know, we can see um, further away than, uh, than we could accurately describe or, uh, or the Israelites would really um, have had a good handle on where we're, we're talking to. So we see that the Lord is, uh, his reach is far. You know, we talked about how uh, earlier that peace was uh, far away, right? That uh, righteousness was um, too far away for us to reach out and grab it. And he says, but, uh, but now things are shifting. And so that the Lord, um, his judgment and salvation are right here. And that leads us to verse 20. He says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. So that's where we see repentance happening. The, the person who's turning from their transgression. He says, Everyone knows about their transgressions. We covered that. We covered that already. Um, and there's an additional step because somebody can know their sin really well. They can see all of the, all of the traps that they fall into, and not turn from them. You know, you can confess that what you're doing is wrong, and then continue. So what what he's saying here, he says, uh, "I'm going to redeem those who turn away from their transgressions." And that's the beautiful. We, yeah, we, we see that that other element of the gospel story of the of the repentance, which is a turning. Um, that there is there is obviously as you look through eighteen and nineteen, there's you see the salvation, the judgment part of salvation of making wrongs, you know, judgment and fear. He's a he's a just God, so he has to do this stuff. But um, we do see that for those who turn, and of course, we know that we don't even our turning is not us. Um, which I think we even see a little bit in verse 21. We see what, you know, this is what I will do. Um, but yeah, certainly the repentance element is there, is beautifully there in 20. That's right. And so it, it's kind of reminiscent of like Numbers 22, um, when Israel is, when the Lord sends uh, serpents and they, they're, they're biting everyone. And then he tells Moses to create a bronze serpent. Um, and that by to the serpent who's being held up in the air, uh, they can be healed. And so we look at 
in a sense, 17 through 19, you know, this, this coming judgment from the Lord is almost like the, the snake bite that's leading us to look to Christ being lifted up uh, as the Redeemer and the, the arm of the Lord uh, who's here to save in verse 20. And then uh, the Lord explains further. He says, verse 21, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So there's our Trinity alert because we just talked about the Son uh, and here the Father is explaining to us that uh, it is the Spirit um, who is uh, upon, uh, upon you. And these words, uh, one of the functions of the Holy Spirit, of course, is to bring to mind the things that Christ said. And here it says that he's putting these words uh, into uh, our mouth and into the mouth of our offspring um, and uh, grandkids and on down the line. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I do think that it's, it's important as we see. I think number one, at the, the at the beginning of this, I see this again, this beautiful contrast. I think those words, as for me, he's like, you know, you guys are, are a hot mess and you can't do anything. But as for me, this is my covenant. And I, and, and that's what I love that this this beautiful covenant. I mean, we have, this portrays the beauty of covenant. That, that a covenant, we Difference between a covenant and a contract. A contract says, hey, I'll do this as long as you do this. If you stop doing that, then I'm released from the contract. The contract's over. A covenant says, I'm going to do this regardless of what you do. This is what I will do this. My, your, your, there is no conditions that will make me change the covenant. And so we can see how we are just a mess. We don't, there's no truth. We don't do anything. He says, but as for me, this is you. I just went through all what you guys are. <laughs> Let me tell you about me now. This is my covenant. And again, so you see this mix that you see the mixed pronouns again. This is my covenant with them. And it says, my spirit who is on you and my words that I put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth. So again, we're just changing from a to and from a personal pronouns, but which I, I again, all I can think is that he's trying to just show a comprehensiveness. If he, if he just uses a personal pronoun, it's like, well, other people, well, I guess he's just talking to you, so it doesn't involve me. They, you can personally can read it and say, well, I guess it's just them. But by mixing them together, it's like, no, it's, it's as we would say in Texas, it's all y'all, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's all of you. It's you. It's them. It's us. It's all of you. Um, this is my covenant with all of you that turn from your transgression. We must be, be clear. For those who turn their, from their transgression – this is my covenant. My spirit is on you. My words I put in your mouth. I won't depart from your mouth. Um, man, that's just this beautiful uh, legacy language. Or from the mouths of your children, or from the mouths of your children's children, from now and forevermore. That's a powerful covenant language. Um, that beautiful. That just brings that. Again, as dark as the darkness was earlier in the chapter is as reassuring and comforting as we, as we get, it just kind of keeps climaxing to all the way to 21. Is this, is like, Oh, the sun has come out and there is hope. <laughs> yeah. And hope that's going to continue intergenerationally, like you said, but uh, you know, you mentioned the, the use of body parts 
at the beginning of 59, you know, yep. that the Lord's hand is not shortened, um, that his ear um, isn't dull, you know, he's, it's, it's big enough to hear. Uh, and then, but he kind of flips that on its head in 21 and says, like, it's my spirit who's actually the solution here. You're not at, you're not waiting on a hand or an ear, you know, you're waiting on, um, you're waiting on my spirit. Um, and of course, which of course he gets. Uh, so I guess that leads us into chapter 60. Uh, which starts off by saying, uh, arise, shine for your light has come and your for behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness, the people, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So we've got lots of upward language here. Yeah. And so for me, this was a hard chapter to, um, I mean, I, and I, I probably, I mean, in my mind, I think we almost have to have like a, some kind of an overall context before you, you get into much of the weeds because so much, it, there's a lot of imagery here that you got to think context. I, I'll tell you this. And so just as a general takeaway of this, of this chapter was a reminder. Um, it was a reminder to me that we, that we need to, um, eschatology is something we must hold loosely to, <laughs> um, that there is, and I say that in that this is a general thing, because obviously this is this seems to be this this eternal kingdom kind of a chapter. This is an eschatology laden chapter. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and I was thinking it was over over time and I've always held pretty loosely. I've never taken a hard position on any one of the the, the millennial views. I would say probably over the years I've become more of a, you know, probably been largely persuaded by an amillennial view. Um and, and then I started reading 60. I'm like, and you know, this is not that makes it harder to see that. And you know, one of the things that we think about a a, a post millennial view, and I don't know if it would be helpful to even think through what these each of these mean um, to to put this in the context. But I think most times, you know, probably one of the least known is the is a post millennial view that probably few less least number of people really would adhere to. And yet, I would say that chapter 60 is almost this has to be the the trophy chapter for someone who holds a post millennial view, which is essentially that you have the the church age. Um, it we go from darkness, but it, it increases in light and keeps getting better until you get to this this actual kind of an, a golden age of the church is reigning and and righteousness covers the earth and it's still here and there's still there's still sinful people. There's still it's not this is not no sin yet. It's just that the church is just awesome and then it culminates with the second coming of christ and and i as you read this i'm like well then boy you could make a pretty strong case for a post-millennial view in reading chapter 60. um and so again it was just for me i think as an overall thing as i look at it, it's just a a good reminder to hold loosely to eschatology we it's it's i don't think anybody can say that they absolutely have the corners say this is how it's all going to go down Right. Once we get to verse 19, it starts to be pretty clear that uh, parts of Revelation were, you know, um, a, a bit plagiarized. <laughs> yes. Where, um, he's, he's sort of rehashing uh, things Isaiah has already told us. But, um, but between here and, and there, we've 
got a lot of a lot of promises uh, that, that God makes, and um, that's you know uh, where and that's where we're going. So he says, uh, verse four. He says, "Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant." And your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian, and uh, Epha, <laughs> all those from Sheba shall come, and shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of uh, Kedar shall be gathered to you, the rams of Nabaioth shall minister to you, they shall come up. Uh, with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. So it may be obvious uh, that I did not uh, practice a pronunciation for any of those places. Um, but the key uh, is always say it with confidence. <laughs> um, I'll, I guess I'll try that next time. So, <laughs> uh, but of course the Lord is he's, here is promising prosperity and he's coming at it from a few different angles. Um, you know, whatever it is you value, whether it's um, the, the ability to trade, whether it's, you know, uh, straightforward uh, money, whether it's the praises from the Lord. Um, and, you know, he, he mentions uh, camels. So I assume, you know, uh, cigarettes, <laughs> every everything, these um, everything uh, that, that you could be blessed with is 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 coming your way. Yeah, I think there's a point. You, you, you see this attractiveness of that uh, you're doing this, and you see that. So, I, like I like I went and I like highlighted every time I saw the word something about come or come to you, and you know as you see in three, the nations will come to your light. Verse four, they all gather and come to you. Uh, verse five, the wealth of the nations will will come to you. Uh, the sea will be yours. Um, the in six, all of them will come from Sheba. Uh, all of the seven, all the flocks of God will be gathered to you. That there is this this picture of the attractiveness of of this people when God changes our hearts and changes us. There's, there's this. Everyone is going to want to be a part of this. They're going to come and they want to. I got to. I got to see this. And I don't. Again, I don't know how this. I, I, I'm not an eschatology expert to say how does this fit into the whole end times thing. But what we see here is that there is a people of God that somehow is living and doing things in such a way that everyone's got to see it from all over the place. Right. So we got, we end on the theme of beauty, right? Uh, I'll beautify my beautiful house. And then he sort of expounds on that. Uh, Verse eight, who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows for the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. Why? For the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because He has made you beautiful. And if that's not uh, the ultimate redemption of chapter fifty-nine, where we heard all these unbeautiful stories, um, all this brokenness, and knowing that uh, in His time is actually making that beautiful. Yeah, that's the restoration part of the whole gospel story. At once, like if you look at fifty nine, there was nothing attractive. Nothing is like, hey, they're gonna. No one is talking about, hey, boy, they they want to come see. This is amazing. No, it was dark and broken and messed up. 
but because of God, what he's done, because of his covenant love, he's restored us. And now you are attractive and they are, you are beautiful. Why? Because he has glorified you. He has glorified you. That's, that's just beautiful language. Uh, one of the other themes we see uh, throughout Isaiah is how inclusive it is that uh, foreigners keep getting uh, promises. And we're going to start that in uh, chapter 10. He says, foreigners shall build up your walls and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath, I struck you, but in my favor, I've had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually day and night. They shall not be shut that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession for the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. He promises the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet and shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So Israel has no shortage of enemy nations. Uh, it's, it's not something they've, they've ever been lacking. Um, and here we get the ultimate fulfillment that uh, they are all going to come uh, under uh, Israel, that everything valuable they have uh, is actually something they've been storing uh, for Israel. We see um, when uh, Jesus talks about making uh, all of his enemies his footstool. Uh, this is almost like a, um, this is almost a, a retelling, you know, a, a showing how every kingdom and every nation uh, use, uh, the, the Lord says he's going to, he's going to get rid of them, right? Yeah. They're, uh, they're going to perish. And he says, and everything good that they have is going to be mine. Uh, and the way it's going to be mine is because it's going to be yours. So, yeah, I think in here you're seeing this, I think, two things. One is obviously this is a um, almost like a fulfilling of the Abrahamic covenant, right? He's like, oh, remember all the things I promised Abraham, but this is this. Here it is. And, and of course, then you mix it with the New Testament where it says, hey, you're, we're not talking about literal Israel. You know, the um, true Israel is those who have turned. You know, those are what they've got to receive. This is the true Israel. They're the ones that's the light. Now, again, we're, I think, and I, I don't know, we, this, this, you know, we don't necessarily have to hope this isn't a place where we have to have put a bow on top of everything that can be messy. And we can say, wow, this is, what do you do with this? Because in here, one of the things that I struggle with, and I don't know that I have a really a, a way of reconciling that yet, of, of this, you have this thing of God's people. There seems to be this, this restored, hey, he's done this. And we're, we're all, we're almost like this glorified people, but yet there's still an us and them. There's still foreigners who will build your walls. There's still these nations that will serve you. There's still, there's this conflict of us and them. And we don't typically think, we think in terms of eschatology of an us and them, like there's this, this grand chasm, right? There's we're, no sin and then there's judgment. And and yet it appears that there's this intermingling. And I I can't, I, I'm not going to, you, you may have a better feel for it, or there, I'm sure there's wiser people that would just be jumping in to say, I got it, I got it. Um, to me, it's rather messy, and <laughs> and I can I can live with that. That I, what we know is that there is a time that we will be glorified. 
how that all happens, what it will look like exactly, I don't know. Um, but as long as I'm on the us and not them, I'm good. <laughs> all right. So then uh, verse 15, he says, whereas you've been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. So what's the point of all this prosperity? Uh, God boils it down uh, to an explanation that it's, it's to show off his worth. It's to show that he is the savior. He is the redeemer. And so there's, uh, there's no way to look at it where the end result is uh, Israel having stuff. <laughs> there's no uh, end where Israel um, is proud of themselves uh, because we're always looking uh, to the Lord. And he says, you know, verse 15, where you've been forsaken and hated with no one passing through. Um, I think about like a, a, a ghost town in a movie where, you know, they say, well, once the interstate came through, nobody comes through here anymore, you know? And so everybody's slowly leaving the town and that's exactly how Israel felt. Um, and we see that the Lord doesn't see things the way we do. You know, I've been thinking about how if somebody was watching uh, Abraham's life and they saw, you know, they watched him for a hundred years and thought, wow, this Abraham guy is kind of a loser. You know, he's got no family. He's got, uh, he's got no heir to pass on all of his stuff to, you know, he, he really, uh, uh, he really didn't do a, a great job or he must not be blessed in this or that way. Um, but we know that the Lord doesn't see things that way because his job, verse nine, you know, 60 verse nine says, um, for the because he has made you beautiful, right? Um, everyone is bringing all of these things uh, to Israel because the Lord has made them beautiful. And he's, he's a beautiful maker. And we've seen the imagery of him turning a desert into a lush and vibrant land or even to a river, <laughs> right? A place that has no water, having, um, having nothing but water. And here... The, the thing that he is changing and making is these forsaken and hated people, uh, which uh, to have him flip the uh, flip uh, the perspective and say, uh, I am the Lord, your God, uh, your savior, your redeemer. I am the mighty one and I make you majestic. I think one of the languages I see here, I think, is, is again with those patterns is of the I wills. Um, you see throughout this this from the middle on, you know, that you say what what this is God saying, hey, this is what you did. This is what because of my covenant, this is what I will do. You want to lay out the, exactly what the covenant is, and you so you so you things see things like in verse ten. Um, Although I struck you with my wrath, yet I will show you mercy mercy to you with my favor. Um, verse 15, I will make you an object of eternal pride. 17, I will bring gold instead of bronze. I will bring silver instead of iron. Uh, I will appoint peace as your government and righteousness as your overseers. So he's just, he's like, he's, he's just kind of laying out. This is, this is all the things that I'm going to do for you as a, as a, 
as part of my covenant love for you. Um, and it just keeps, again, it just kind of this, just like, just like 59 kind of went from this darkness to kind of a, a, a kind of accelerated to this, to hope. It seems like 60 is just that keeps, it just keeps stacking every few for every verse is a little better than the worst verse before until it's just, you know, the end of it just, boy, is this is beautiful image of, which really reflects revelation, but I'm, I guess I'm getting ahead of ourselves again. Well, you know, um, Jesus talks about how um, if if anyone um, if anyone's uh, a child asks them for bread, who's going to give them a stone? You know, and he follows it up by saying, uh, "If you who are evil know how to give good gifts, you know how much more uh, does the heavenly Father know how to give gifts to His children?" And that's what we're seeing here, verse seventeen. Um, he says, "Listen, all these nice things that you're used to, uh, I'm going to raise the stakes." Uh, and he he uh, ups every uh, building material that they're used to having. He says, um, "Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation and destruction within your borders, and you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise." So he's talking about a period of uninterrupted prosperity. Yeah. Like he loves to give good gifts uh, to his children. He's able to his children. And I'm reminded of um, this book, uh, God's Smuggler, uh, where Brother Andrew talks about the royal way, which is his explanation that uh, in any given situation, there are, are more, there's more than one way that a Christian is allowed to act. Um, but he would always challenge to do the, to, to react the way that um, allows God the biggest uh, reaction. And so one instance that uh, comes to mind is um, there was a, uh, there was a beggar who came to him for money, uh, but brother Andrew was having money problems himself. And so he had, was trying to explain to him that he didn't have any money to give him. And then he sees a coin on the ground. And so he uses his foot to cover up the coin so that once the beggar leaves, he can pick it up uh, privately. And, uh, but it, during his conversation, he gets convicted about it and says, you know what? Um, he, he moves his foot, uh, picks up the coin and hands it to the guy who, you know, thanks him and, and leaves. And then, um, but now he's left, you know, penniless, um, until, uh, the way he tells a story, you know, it was immediately, uh, somebody comes with a letter, <laughs> a letter from a prayer group, uh, that sent him a lot of money because they believed that the Lord wanted them to. And so, he would have, uh, he could have missed out on that blessing, he believes, based on uh, him trying to solve his own problem when uh, he knew that the Lord, uh, when instead he trusted that the Lord had a solution in mind that he had already been, because that's the thing about like the post. If something comes in at just the right time, that means that they put it in the mailbox uh, earlier than that. <laughs> Right. And the, the Lord is in control of everything. He's got every plate that spins is his plate, right? So he has everything worked out. And even when you feel like you've got such limited resources that you can't spare any for the kingdom, um, the Lord has resources uh, everywhere. Uh, there, there is always something the Lord has uh, that you can't see. And see 
the way that his heart is revealed by the fact that he's not giving, uh, he's not giving good enough. He's giving uh, abundantly. He's giving uh, better. And so when, when we get into a situation where we say, did the Lord, you know, does the Lord really have anything in store for me besides what, what limited resources he's, he's given? Um, and, and I think faith would look at a verse like this and say, you know, maybe we should pray for and expect good things from the Lord um, because he, he can and wants to uh, bless us those ways. So get us to the let's 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 get the culmination. Right. This is the good stuff. Here we go, chapter nine, uh, uh, verse nineteen. I forgot how the Bible works here, but verse nineteen <laughs> says, "The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory." Uh, some texts say beauty there, which would go with the beautiful theme of this uh, chapter. Uh, your, I'm sorry. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. And the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Yeah. And of course, you, I mean, you can't read this and not automatically go to Revelation 21 and the end of the, the you know, the consummation of all things. And this is the, this is, this is, I, I don't think, you know, John obviously was aware of this text, but that doesn't mean he wasn't just copying this and plugging it into Revelation. He, sure. This was a confirmation of like, yes, they're, they're seeing the same thing. Um, and, and, and boy, what a hope this is um, that we can in a, in a day where right now, I mean, we, we just think about, you know, everyone, you, you can't talk to anybody that everyone's like, man, things are just messed up. You know, we're, we've always been aware of the brokenness of our world, but it seems like everyone is like, first thing you talk to anybody, boy, crazy times we're in, right? Man, things are messed, boy, things sure are messed up now. We are, and, and there's this, the, we see creation is groaning as, 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 as Romans 8 talks about. And, and that's good because the, the groaning means that it, there's this time coming. We're aching for this. This is the hope that it's okay. We can, we can deal with this. I don't have to get caught up into the brokenness of, of what's going on politically or socially or anything else because I have this. And whether you're looking at, at Isaiah 60 or Revelation 21, we have a hope that should allow us just to fly above all of the brokenness in this world. And instead of being dismayed by it, we can look for hope that says, hey, it's coming. I, it's, you know, was it Romans used the, the imagery of pregnancy? You know, hey, we're labor pains have started. And that means a birth is coming. And this is what the birth looks like. And so, man, what a beautiful, what a, what a hopeful several verses that 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 is of just what we what we have to look forward to uh that's right we see uh the sun and moon which have been around since uh the first uh thursday right uh the lord created the sun and moon and um and then ended the fourth day so what we see here is that 
um, he's uh, almost putting a bookend on uh, creation, right? Um, and saying we don't we don't need that um, anymore. The reason the reason we needed it um, was because uh, the the world that he was building would need to be revolving around um, would need to be uh, revolving around uh, all these things that that fall on everyone, right? The, the sunshine falls on everyone. The moonlight uh, is a gift for everyone too. And he says that at some point uh, it's going to be gone because God is going to be so close and he's going to be so radiant. He's going to be so unhidden, right? Just, uh, uh, I don't want to say exposed because I'm going to make him sound vulnerable. He'll just be so revealed and, and so glorified that, he's going to stay that way forever uh, or rather he already is that way. We will be the ones able to see it. And then he talks about uh, dwelling in that land um, and how everyone is going to have prestige, right? The, the smallest person is going to have uh, a, a legacy, but God is just, he's looking at everyone um, and he has blessings in store uh, for people um, who we would call unassuming. So it's definitely a high note to end on, right? That uh, basically the whole, uh, this new Zion that we're looking forward to, um, you know, we don't have to worry about um, uh, borders uh, today because we know that eventually um, the best of every land is going to belong to uh is going to belong to Israel. Uh, we know that we've been grafted in. Uh, if, if you believe in Christ and you know, listen to us now, um, then you get to take part in all these blessings uh, that we just read about. And with that, I think we need want to turn it over to our application. You know, what is the what is the practical um, working out of these two verses or chapters? I mean. And I would say it goes back to what I said at the beginning, that this is the, that, that for those, I mean, this should either bring, these two chapters should either bring a sense of great joy or a sense of great conviction. That there is, um, you know, as they say, for those who are outside of God, I mean, that, that this world, this world is as close to heaven as you will ever get. And for those who are within Christ, this world is as close to hell as you will ever get, <laughs> right? And, and and so there is should be a soberness and a hope that we that hope that we, you would see that when the language of fifty nine is saying you and there and you and this is you you need a we we all need a savior we're all broken no one as, as verse four says no one makes claims justly no one pleads honestly. And um, so that we would see, read yourself into that and to see, I need a savior. There is a hope. There's a hope beyond compare, but it only comes from those who turn and repent. And, and for those of us who have it, we're, we don't have to be dismayed by, by all of the brokenness we see around us because we have the hope. Uh, there will be 
a new heaven and a new earth. And you explain it. You know, hey, when you see things where the moon doesn't shine and the moon, you know, the sun's not doing it, like that's new. It's not like this. All the things that you read in the last part of this, it's not, it, that's not anything like what we have now. So when John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, he's like, yeah, there's nothing here that looks familiar. Um, that's a great hope. So I, I hope that this brings great hope to those who are already followers of Christ. And I think the practical answer is, is and, and love to, to hear this and say, if you're not there, that this would be a, another warning. God's speaking to you again to say, turn. Um, there is hope for those who turn. All right. So the big emphasis in 59 on uh, justice, right, on uh, doing the Lord's will, um, which, of course, you can't do uh, if you're not reading Scripture. Um, we live in a golden age of having access to the Bible, where you have apps for Bible memory. Um, uh, Bibles themselves are uh, so easy to get. Um, and so for us, uh, the first application, uh, I would say, is to be familiar with the Bible, to be uh, reading it constantly uh, so that you know what the Lord is calling you to, because uh, otherwise you don't have any chance, right? Uh, we would just be lost trying to come up with God's laws on our own. Uh, but also um, to uh, this, this justice that he's talking about, we want to... Uh, stand up for other people. We want to uh, see uh, problems and listen uh, in, a, in a way that's not judgmental. Uh, we want to um, look at things the way that God sees them and know that God is paying attention. Right? He says, um, here... We see how sinful work doesn't clothe anyone. It doesn't feed anyone. And um, for that, uh, we get to intentionally uh, re-examine uh, the way that we spend our time and say, what are we actually doing for others? What are we doing that's benefiting others? And so I, those uh, three applications uh, for me, uh, reading the Bible, um, taking up, uh, the cause of uh, someone else, uh, justice, and uh, providing material goods for other people. You know, if, if those things um, aren't something that we're doing right now, uh, which of course I'm, I'm convicted of uh, lack of those things in my own life, but uh, that is what I want to change based on looking at these chapters. It would encourage you guys uh, who are listening. Uh, Barry, do you have any final thoughts before we go? No, I think that's I guess that's, I think that's all I have. Perfect. Well, with that, uh, this is Redeemer Radical Reflections from Reading Rightly. Um, and I was joined tonight by Barry Pett and joined in spirit by George Cagle. <laughs> and this is Scotty Jinks signing off. Uh, have a good night.